0: Stage
1: one tanks for flight. And launch of the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket.
0: Being the first foreman, it is important, right? Because role models are really important and I've come to understand that. But coming up through the system, I I never really thought about it. It's just work hard. Do your best. Launch directors go for launch. It is my pleasure to welcome to today's program Holly Riding's Chief Flight Director at NASA, NASA's lead flight director for the SpaceX demonstration mission.
2: Those folks, in order to do their work, have to put themselves in danger. You have to be at a certain elite level that no one cares about that anymore. It doesn't matter if you're getting shot at. You're going to do your job, whatever your job
1: is. We
2: choose to go to the moon. So, why is that the beast? So, damn tough.
0: When you're in the control center, you can't stay for very long and do what we do if you're not willing to just keep working the problem. So, damn
1: Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Steinfeld, and this is going to be an out of this world episode. First up, we have Holly Ridings, who is the Chief Flight Officer for NASA, in charge of many missions to the ISS, to the moon as well. And it's going to be fascinating to dig into how all of the stresses and pressures that are involved in those sort of things. Welcome to the show, Holly. Thanks for
0: having me. It's going to be great fun.
1: It is going to be great fun. And that's partly because joining you on the show is a long-time I would call a friend of mine, a collaborator, someone who I met at uh, the University of Pennsylvania back in the day when we were both doing academic things. And he invited me to this thing called the Mission Critical Teams Institute, which I was like, I don't know what that is. And now that I do, you've probably heard me mention it on the show a thousand times. Preston Klein was one of the founders of that institute, Have gone on now to work with a bunch of different teams who do badass things in unusual situations. We'll dig into that more during the episode. But firstly, welcome to the show, Preston. i excited to be here and thanks for having me. It's going to be a great episode. And before we even go any further, I'd love to hear how you two crossed paths for the first time because that's often a, uh, a good place to start if we've got two guests, but particularly two effervescent, outgoing people like you. I want to hear the story.
0: It's actually a little bit of a funny story. I was in California on a work trip. My boss at the time called and said... Hey, I need you to go to New York. And I said, no, I'm going home. I've been gone for a while. I've got a little kiddo. And he said, I need you to go to New York. And of course, then I said, yes, sir. So I fly, you know, red eye, end up in New York, you know, two in the morning. And the next morning I find myself on this bus and we end up at the fire department of New York where they train. And I'm still thinking like, where am I? But there's there's other NASA people. So the, my premise was okay, there's other people that I work with that are going to be there. I'm going to do some bonding with them. And then Preston gets up and starts talking. And I kind of, I remember this, like I'm super bleary eyed. Like I got to put sticks in my eyelids and he starts talking and I like woke up and went, huh, this is really interesting. And that year it was all about selection. Like how do you select people for high performance jobs? We were there because we'd just done an astronaut selection And also then in front of us had a flight director selection. And so through an army astronaut had been hooked up with Preston and the, the mission critical team Institute. And so it was a revolution in my mind of people who do similar things, but aren't necessarily space people, right? Up until then, it had all been space, space, you know, you do development, you do training, you talk to space people. And after about an hour, I thought, wait a minute, all these people in this room are just like me. We're trying to solve all the same problems. And it literally was like sort of my second origin story where my leadership and how I look at the world started to completely change. So I am a big fan, uh, friend and fan of MCTI and Dr. Preston Klein.
2: The only thing I would add to that was I got connected to you guys through Dr. Don Cornegas, who I think is now at UNC. And Don is one of the many things that she's done is that she was one of the scuba divers that live for long duration underwater to sort of test some of the theories around international space exploration. And she goes, she calls me one day and she goes, hey, do you have any context to NASA? And I said, no, at the time, just I'll put you in touch with them. And it's one of those things you hear from people. You're like, yes, you will. Of course, yeah, you will. sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and sure enough. Next thing I know, I'm meeting Holly and the team. So, uh, yeah, that's how that happened. And so I, I
1: actually think I had that kind of experience the first time I spoke to you, Preston, because you're like, "Oh, I should come to this thing. Uh, we have some people who oh, yeah. I work in sport, with professional athletes, you are know, like, oh, you know, we have some cool to people. You probably learn something. I'm like, oh, OK, whatever. And then as I start to read through the list, I'm like, okay, there's there's FBI and there's Navy SEALs and there's the Air Force and there's NASA. And I'm like, I do not belong in this room, but it's an amazing community. We'll talk about that a little more as we go through the show. I think you just mentioned there the long periods of time underwater to learn what it's like to go to space. And as I was trying to rushing to get this set up right now for context, both of you know, but the listeners may not. I'm mid-trip right now. I was in Europe uh, working with an Olympic team getting ready for Tokyo. And I'm now rushing back from Sweden to Paris, Paris to LA, where I'm stopping to do this episode, and then LA to Sydney, where I work with a few more national teams. And that's around about a 40-hour trip. It's not all the way around the globe, but it's about as close as I want to go. And as I was getting ready for this show, I was like, I wonder how long it takes to get to the ISS. And it turns out you have to go around, in Holly, you'll correct me here, it's probably changed since whatever I read on the internet, but you have to go around the world four times so that you can dock. Like, it's, it's not that far north, or sorry, as in up in the air, as I thought it might be, but you have to circle the globe four times just so you can dock, and then you're going to be up there for however long it is. And so it's such an extreme profession, such an extreme set of projects that you manage, Holly, and... Really, really curious to dig into the effects of that on both physically and mentally and the toughness that's required for that. But before we do that, a different type of toughness is rising to be a woman in a position that you're in right now. And so curious how that starts because, as I understood it, you you did a Bachelor of Science. How does someone who graduates with, with a Bachelor of Science, which is a pretty, you know, it's not an unusual degree, end up being the Chief Flight Operator of NASA?
0: Yeah, so you know, like you said, I, I wish Texas a I have a bachelor of science an engineering degree in technical engineering. Since I was very young, I had wanted to work for NASA. I told you, you know, sort of my second origin story where I really got interested and excited about leadership. But my, my first origin story is I was in the sixth grade when the Challenger accident happened and I was watching it live, you know, in our elementary school cafeteria. And, You know, so many people's reaction to that was, I don't want anything to do with space. And my reaction to that was, how do I make it better so that something like that never happens again? So I'm kind of a run towards the problem, fix it kind of person. (laughs) And so, you know, ever since I was little, I wanted to work in space. So engineering seemed like a good route. And I did, you know, summer internships, you know, had an opportunity to, to meet a bunch of people in the industry, even as a student. And then I just came to the Johnson Space Center when we were beginning to build the space station. So the very beginning, this is 1998, and just sort of did the work at the ground level, um, sitting in mission control, putting the very first pieces of the space station together and just worked my way up. I love operations. I love the team of it. I have a million questions to ask you about athletics because I, I grew up playing sports and there's so many parallels between our team approach and, you know, kind of whatever it takes. And I think that operations in particular, that form of engineering really resonated with me. And so after that, it's just a lot of, you know, hard work nose to the grindstone, right? And, you know, being the first foreman, it is important, right? Because role models are really important and I've come to understand that. But coming up through the, the system, I, I never really thought about it. It's just work hard, do your best, work hard, do your best get up when it doesn't go well over and over and over again. And then you sort of find yourself there and you look around and you're like, Hey, I can do this. And then, you know, you start to try to give back. There's the short version.
1: <laughs> short version, an amazing version. And I'm sure there's more to it. You mentioned the characteristic there, a part of your makeup, as they would call it in sport or potentially personality that, that I think that Preston, this is, this question is going to go to you. It seems like it would be a, a regular trait in the type of people who are part of this community, the mission critical teams community, I've listed some of them before, firefighters, Navy SEALs, NASA, is that they run towards problems. Is that true, Colin?
2: So here's what's interesting. (laughs) So initially, that is a true statement. What we find is that some of the people running to the problem should not be running towards the problem. (laughs) And so what we find is that some of the folks who seek out like drama or seek out excitement will run towards it, but they'll lock up when they get there. So you, it is an initial, sure, you got to do that, but there's also uh, some people who do that. who are not right.
1: Right. And that, and that really was potentially the genesis of the mission critical teams was that there's, there used to be, or there was a historical traditional way of training, which was like, we're gonna. Kind of, Bang your heads hard until, and yeah. if you break, you break. Can you talk a little more about how that, act, how your crew actually came to have that as your specialty? Like you, you went from being someone who just did like wilderness camps, and now you're yeah. one of the most sought after trainers of people who do elite shit. Like focus through that.
2: So what's interesting, right, is that I've talked to a bunch of professional sports teams about this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's still basically true and there's exceptions to this rule justin langer being one of the famous ones of going from being an athlete to a coach that distance is often too great for people to make and we've seen a lot of examples of people failure again justin from made a, that done from well a great
1: athlete to a great coach. Right? there a lot a of like Phil belichick was an athlete but he what he didn't really break it right Thank so you, you mean like an elite me. performer to yeah, an elite coach that's right, right.
2: and so In my world, fire, technical law enforcement, special operations, NASA, everyone who was an athlete or what we call an operator is the person who, if they do well, eventually goes back to the schoolhouse to train the next generation. There's no exceptions to that rule. They don't bring in anyone from the outside. And to have any kind of gravitas or credibility, you have to have been an elite performer. And so the problem is, is that just because you've done a thing doesn't mean you can teach a thing. Just because you know what right looks like and feels like doesn't mean you can articulate that. And it also doesn't mean you can measure it. And so we came into being because in partnership with many of those teams, while I was still at Wharton, getting my doctorate at the ed school, we, came, we found this gap, which is if we fail to develop the instructor cadre, the downstream effect of the teams is catastrophic, but hidden. And so we had to just invest a lot of energy in trying to get that right. So that's where we came from.
1: Right, and, and you used the word catastrophic there. I'm going to ask you to. This is the the light bulb moment for me when you were trying to explain to me what you guys do. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, sounds cool. Also, sounds a little weird. But you said all of these groups have this thing in common, and you described what you define yeah. as a mission critical teams in your in your research, which to me was like, oh my god, that is what we do in sport. And kind of like what Holly mentioned, it was like, oh, these people do the same stuff just in different arenas. Can you share that with the audience? Sure.
2: There is. So, for example, if I put just on our team cast, in partnership with the FBI, we were able to interview one of the guys that did a hostage rescue, child rescue in Alabama in 2013. And those guys have to train an exceptional amount of time because the rule number one is you can't shoot the hostage, right? You got to move fast, get into where you're going, save the good guy do whatever you need to do to the bad guy. The problem is, is that not the problem, but those folks in order to do their work have to put themselves in danger. So firefighters have to go into a burning building. A professional sports player is under a great deal of stress, but it's unlikely they will die as a result of their work. It happens certainly, but it's unlikely. It's not expected. With all these other teams, it's expected. And so you have to be at a certain elite level that no one cares about that anymore. At the sort of what we would call the tier two level or what you might call the amateur leagues. People care a great deal about that. But once you get to be the best in the world, it doesn't matter if you're getting shot at, you're gonna do your job, whatever your job is. Like Holly, it wouldn't matter if she was getting shot at or or, or literally a hurricane was barreling down on her, which recently happened, or a pandemic that's threatening her family, recently happened. She's still got people in space, right? She's got humans that she's responsible for 24 hours a day, Inside of an incredibly complex machine, where nine one one is not
1: quick. <laughs> that's a that's a really good kind of a throwaway line, but that really is true. Is is the mission critical element there? Which, if you're with a Navy SEAL team, there's potentially a medic nearby or someone trained in it in your cadre. Obviously, athletes, as you mentioned, they don't die. They might lose millions of dollars, but they don't. There's no life things there. Their ego. But Holly, your crews, when they're under stress, are really under stress. Like I'm curious a little bit, we're we're dealing a lot at the moment as we prepare the Olympics, they're going to go into a bubble. And being precious athletes, there's some things they complain about that we might roll our eyes about, but, you know, they're getting ready to do this very, very unique thing under a lot of pressure. With the added things that come with COVID and going into a foreign country and all the extras. And they're going to be immersed in that for longer than they normally would be without reprieve. But your crews go to the space station for it maybe only a day to get up there, but they're there for quite a while, as I understand. And so talk us through the stresses that are involved there, not only the physical stress of being an astronaut, but the mental and emotional stresses of being isolated for so long.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned earlier, you know, how quick can you get to the space station? So you were describing a, a four-orbit rendezvous. So that's what we call it a four-orbit rendezvous. And actually, if you did four orbits around the earth, it would take a lot longer. It only takes them about six, six and a half hours to get to the space station, four-orbit rendezvous. We used to do 34, so they were in their, you know, tiny spaceship traveling to the space station for much longer. You know, so when you consider the, the stressors, when I talk a lot with with the teams, you know, some of the, the folks that you guys have mentioned. You know, those of us on the ground, right, we're not going into the burning building, right? Those are our, our astronauts, our crews that we're responsible for. And so there's a lot of analogies you can draw to, you know, you are putting your, you know, away team, your remote team in danger, basically, by letting them, you know, launch on a, on a rocket in a spaceship and, and fly through space. And so from the ground, that has its own set of stressors because you've tried to do all the work. And then when it's go time, there's not a lot you can do, certainly from a launch standpoint. Now we have the ability to command the spaceships and all kinds of contingencies, but there's you know some part of it that you're not there. So what we deal with on the ground in terms of stressors is a little bit different than what the astronauts deal with. They obviously, like you said, are in isolation. They typically stay on the space station for six months as a standard rotation. We have done up to a year. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's a little less, but the average is about six months. And so, you know, they're away from their families, you know, isolated up there doing work. And so that's a different kind of stress than being responsible for them, but getting to go home, you know, every night and see your family and and sleep in your bed. And so we work really hard actually to understand each other's perspective of the different stressors that we have so that we make a good team between us. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about
2: pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booze Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. Robust is my ability to take a hit and not fall down. Resilient is I take the hit, fall down, but I get right back up. Mindful is I get out of the way of the hit. So damn proud.
1: I'm really curious to dig in on that point, particularly around like both understanding points of view or or different stresses within the team, because there is obviously some benefit in that, but particularly in terms of once you understand what stresses an astronaut goes through, both in getting there, but also in staying there and still operating in what is a very dangerous environment for six months. It's not like you go into a building and you get out and then you get to go home. It's go there and it's danger every day. What do you do in terms of your training, and and this is probably, Colin, you can speak to this after Holly, but how do you, as the leader of the team, prepare people to go there and then support them? What what do you actually put in as as a system, or you know, is there resilience training? I don't know. I don't even know where you would start.
0: Well, I mean, you start with the basics, right? Which is relationship building, and a lot of it comes back to trust, right? So when we do we call flight readiness, right? So for every mission, we do a flight readiness review where, you know, all of the leadership gets together and says, hey, we understand the risk. There's always risk. It's space flight, right? So you can't get to zero risk, but we understand it and we judge it to be safe enough to allow our people, our astronauts to fly. So You go back to building relationships, right? If we come out of those discussions, all of the technical work to look at things like parachutes and propulsion systems and command systems and guidance navigation, and we say, Yeah, we think we're good to go, they need to trust us that we have done all of the right work. And conversely, we need to trust them. So it starts a lot with you get assigned, you know, to a crew that you're gonna be as a flight director, you know, paired with on a mission and you travel with them. Now, COVID, we could talk about that. It's been interesting, right, to try to build those relationships. But typically, you'll travel some with them to get to know them personally. Um, sometimes we do things like, you know, outdoor leadership, the Knowles type stuff, not always, but sometimes they travel, you know, all over the world to do their training for the International Space Station. And so there's a lot of, of participating in that. Then there's the sort of, stress, the relationships under stress, right? Where you train all of the emergency scenarios on the space station. We have three big ones like fire, rapid depress, like you lose your air. And then ammonia, because our thermal systems use ammonia. All of those can be catastrophic. And so we train those quite a bit. The crews actually, they crew complements. They don't always go up together and come down together. They switch out maybe in the middle. Well, again, a lot of analogies with a lot of the other teams that Preston works with. And so they try to train with all of the different combinations so that they know, you know, who is playing which role, how quick they can respond, the communication. And really, we do lots and lots and lots of simulations. Like we practice a lot. And that is, you know, sitting in a room, mission control. You've got a computer that, you know, pretends it's the space station or whichever vehicle, the moon vehicle, Orion, you know, for Artemis. And you practice and people... Break things, and you know sometimes in the sims the crew will die, and you have to go through those things in your head to where you build up some you know resiliency as well as the technical knowledge for what to do. So those are kind of three highlights.
1: Uh, great highlights, like very tangible there. When you said sometimes the crew dies, that's uh, we'll, we'll circle back to that. Preston, I, I noted as Holly started describing that those three highlights. When she first said, it starts with relationships, your your big beaming smile filled up the the screen. Why did that hit you so strong? Is that really the basis for you of a lot of the work? When
2: you boil down the research, there's a lot of research on attributes and selection, everything else. But as far as we can tell, the only thing that really matters is trust and competence. And so at the end of the day, if the zombies attack and you've got to put together a team You don't come up with a really complex situation. You pick up the phone and you call people. Do I trust them? And are they good at their job? You can trust them and they can be incompetent. You're not going to call them. They can be super competent and you don't want to spend time with them. You're not going to call them. But if you have those two, you can solve 90% of the other stuff. And so relationships at the end of the day really, really matter. There's a bunch of ways that we get at that. And there's a bunch of ways we've seen where that goes poorly. But it's interesting that in today's this is a sort of a social commentary, but one of the things that gets really promoted right now is the sort of self-promotional sort of stuff. And that's the biggest toxin actually for some of these teams. And so if you can't embrace humility and sharing credit, you will not survive quickly. If you make so it you about- you mean
1: like like with that, you mean like the Navy SEALs writing books and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, like,
2: and yeah. so those guys, the people that do get PNG'd, right? And so the people that make that decision- The actual people in the community that are doing the work that you'll never hear about, they get scratched off the boards. And so once you make that choice, it's a choice, no harm, no foul. You got to do what you got to do, got to pay your mortgage and feed your family. But you do leave that community. When you make that choice, you leave that community.
1: Interesting. This is a reflection of how fascinating both Holly, your work, and Preston, your work is that It's taken until the uh, halfway, potentially halfway point of the episode for me to ask the question that I normally ask at the start, which is very basically like in your experience, given the context that you work in and the people you work with, and particularly the pressure and the stress that you and your people deal with, how do you define toughness? What's toughness mean to you? Holly, I'll I'll start with you. Yeah.
0: So, you know, it's interesting, right? We have a what we call foundations of flight operations. So at the Johnson Space Center, right, the flight directors where our organization is, FOD, the flight operations director, right? And so we have a, you know, like a creed and it's, you know, discipline, competence, teamwork, you know, the things Preston was mentioning, but one of them is toughness. And it says, you take a stand when you must to try again, even if it means following a more difficult path. And so when you're in the control center, toughness is a lot about, it's a a little bit of a dichotomy, right? I absolutely know we have to do this right this second, you know, to keep the spacecraft safe, to keep the crew safe. And then on the other hand, it's just extreme humility. There's something going on and I don't understand it. And it's actually really difficult to find that form of toughness in a single person. People really like to be right. Engineers, you know, maybe everyone but they really, really don't like to be wrong. And so to find that form of toughness, right, I'm absolutely certain. And the next minute, I don't know. And so that's kind of what's in our creed. You know, when I read it, though, what popped in my head was maybe a little more what you would describe as resilience, because the other component is like, whatever it takes, we see problems all of the time that we don't know how to solve. And you just chip away and chip away and chip away and kind of never give up. And so that's a it's a different form of toughness, but you can't stay for very long and do what we do if you're not willing to just keep working the problem, right, even when you really have no idea where to start.
1: Yeah, I, I that's awesome that it's in your creed. That, I didn't expect that. That's a very cool revelation. But particularly that line of whatever it takes, which is a cliche in most instances because – a, it may not get followed to the letter of the law, but also it's probably not essential, but particularly, obviously, at NASA, but Preston, with all of the people you work with, it is kind of necessary. Like, whatever it takes, otherwise someone's going to die. Is that part of how you would define it, Preston?
2: Yeah, Patty, I wanna answer that question and I will answer that question, but before first I wanna go back to what Holly just said and paint a little bit of a picture and get Holly to sort of comment on my observations while sitting in mission control. So I've, I've had the opportunity to sit with Holly in mission control. And what's interesting, of, so I wanna paint you this picture, right? So you've got, I think 21 or 22 consoles in the room, somewhere around that. and each of those consoles sits an individual who is in charge of a system, right? So these are not technical terms I'm about to say computers, like oxygen, like electricity, the batteries, like whatever it takes, right? They're all broken into components, right? This is so fun. Yeah, but, and each one of them, by the way, sitting looking at their system is on a headset talking to everyone who ever made any part. We're all standing in their little rooms all over the globe on standby to support if some little weird bolt falls out of action or cracks. What happens, though, and this is what I'm getting at, is that let's say that a system like air circulation starts to have a problem. Well, that's not one thing. That's multiple things, right? That's electricity. That's power. That's a whole bunch of things. So Holly, as the chief flight director, will have multiple people standing up and going, I have a problem. And part of what she has to do is pick which one of them She has to start with, which means saying to some other people, I'll be with you in a second. Now, keep in mind that individual who's given the hand like I need a minute is literally telling you my system is telling me we've got a real problem. And this is all I think about and do. And I'm telling you, I'm the most important thing here. Every single person would be because they're passionate. And toughness is about both Holly's ability to be like, I get it. Give me a minute. And their ability to go, Roger that, I get it. I get the bigger picture. So I would just, and, and Holly, I want you to jump in because I probably mangled a bunch of that. But that's one of the things that I've, I've always admired about the folks that work in that room. Because if I was sitting at this table, I would be standing on the table freaking out, right? Like, no, 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 all of my lights have gone red, like all of them. So I need you to pay attention to me now. But the reason they're going red is because two other systems, which are actually prime, are the problems. So Holly has to go to those, not to me. She solves those, my problems go away. But that's not
0: my focus, if that makes sense. Holly, is that fair, that description? Yeah, that's the most fun I've had all week, Preston, (laughs) listening to you describe... Missing control. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're training new flight directors. Actually right now they just started their simulations that I was telling Patty about and they start out that way a little bit. Like there's 900 red lights. What do I do? Right. And, and so part of the transition from what we call a subject matter expert, you know, the person who just does the air to a flight director is that ability to prioritize. Right. And stay calm while you're doing it and just see the critical path and pick out the most important thing right what is the most important thing and what is the next thing sometimes those are the same thing and sometimes they're a little bit different cuz you got to take a couple steps to get to the most important thing right and you just calmly run that algorithm over and over and over right i guess after many years of doing it 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 sounds maybe simple but but it is really challenging to train your brain again lots of analogies i think to team sports, right? You know, when you yeah. are, you know, the major league baseball manager, what's the next most important thing you need to do, you know, or, or I've talked to formula one guys, you know, who, who manage the race cars, you know, they're kind of the equivalent of a flight director. What's the next most important thing you need to do. Right. So you just do it. I like Preston's description though, much better. That was that. It's much, much more fun.
1: colorful. He tells a great story. I'll tell you <laughs> yeah. that. Like, He's so that good is one him. thing. I've never seen anyone tell a story as good as Preston.
0: Me neither. I aspire to tell stories as good as Preston. Like very this Very kind of you. I very false. kind of you both.
2: Um, Patty, I will answer your question from my side. So okay. a couple of things, and, and my answer is not. it's going to be a little dark, and so I'll prepare the audience for that. So if you look at special operations, fire, technical law enforcement, and emergency medicine right now, every one of those disciplines suicide rate is significantly higher than the average population. And one of the core reasons for that is toughness. And here's the paradox and the challenge, right? In order to be those people, you must be tough. And I'm going to change tough. Sort of you understand my language. I talk about robust, resilient, and mindful. Robust is my ability to take a hit and not fall down. Resilient is I take the hit, fall down, but I get right back up. Mindful is I get out of the way of the hit. The problem with robustness as a bias, as a culture, is that it is ultimately fragile. Because we are human, our desire to tough it out, to just keep through the pain is the thing that ultimately will destroy us. And so toughness is one of those things on its face, which must be embraced early on and then calibrated away from as you get older and more mature. If you only have one dial of toughness, it will get you to success and then it will kill you, literally kill you. So you've got to create a relationship with toughness that changes over time or it will kill you.
0: Yeah. Hey, Patty, if you don't mind me jumping in, it's interesting because when I was doing a little bit of research, right, to, to have this yeah. conversation with you, there were some of your podcasts that talked about, you know, folks reaching out for help. And I thought that's great. And we have amazing resources at NASA. But what I worry about is, is the people Preston's talking about. Those where it's, it's not obvious, and they don't have their buddies say, hey, I'm watching you and I'm going to take you, you know, in to talk to the people because I know you need help. Because I think that those of us who do these kind of jobs, toughness is a way of living and it, and it gets masked. And so when I look at my team, you know, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the person that's not too close to the edge or so close to the edge that it's obvious because I think toughness, as Preston said, can become a detriment if, if you aren't really open and honest about it with yourself and then with your team. So we spend quite a bit of time, you know, sort of checking up on each other.
1: That's really cool to hear. I want want to circle back to that and dig in exactly what that looks like amongst the flight team. But I think you've both touched on something there that's super important. And I have a very tangible reference from the Olympic team that I was just with talking with their captain about getting ready for a COVID Olympics. And all of the bullshit that comes along with that. But I shared with her. You both mentioned, you know, Holly. You you in particular were saying, "What's the next best step? What do I need to turn to now?" Right? There's a saying, and you mentioned in baseball and Formula One. In the NBA development leagues, they teach a very strong message of NBA, which is next best action, and that's really a way of staying present, but also. To Preston's point, the ability to accept that sometimes I just I can't do anything about this thing right now—that has to either wait, or I've just—it's not important—and being able to move to the next best action is part action, but it's also even more importantly acceptance: your ability to accept that there are some things that are going to be shit, and I'm just going to have to live with that. And that was really the discussion we had with the Olympic team: was, you know, yep, there's going to be—you get tested every day, you get something stuck up, and you get your brain scratched every day. And then also you have to wear a mask everywhere. And then also you have to do this and you have to do that. And there's all sorts of things that don't let you enjoy what the Olympics ideally should be if you dream about it. But the, the question ended with what would you be willing to do if it meant you were going to get a medal? And that really was the end point of the, of the conversation. It didn't go much further because it was like the light bulb went off like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what this is really about. And so I'm willing to put up with some of the other things and I'm willing to accept things that I wouldn't normally put up with because there's inherently like i think preston you're talking about that fragility thing there needs to be flexibility before you get to that point of fragility little little diversion there holly you look like you're reaching for the mute button
0: well it just is interesting right because you were talking about the nba and, and the olympic team and you know things you you can't control but there's also mistakes you made right so if you take that one step further handling those mistakes you made. And and again, just, just keep going. Right. And so if you make a bad call in the control center, you know, for myself and for, you know, the team we have right now, luckily none of those things have, have ended with any fatalities for any of the crew members, but you can make a bad call and people will die. And so to be able to have, you know, that toughness to make a mistake, you know, not life or death mistake, but any kind of mistake. And then, you know, just keep going. I, I teach the flight directors, I call it setters mentality because I played volleyball. And so, so if, you're, if you've, you've probably watched a lot of volleyball, right, you're a sports guy. And so, you know, you can set the ball and someone can hit it and, you know, just crush it. You get a point and you can set the ball and then you get somebody roofed and you're like, well, that set sucked. You know, I just got my, you know, middle hitter roofed and then you get the ball back, you know, the next play. And so you over and over and over, right? So to me, it just kind of ties into the world you're, you're talking about. So what is got to be so yeah.
1: uh, Excellent, bustle with the best in there. Simply impressive, no worry and it. Uh, I'm getting by right now. I'll put your shades on and let me show you hand uh, Yeah, right.